Whatever you do, whatever you enjoy, you need your health. Welcome to the Original Guide to Men's Health, a podcast designed for men of all ages to learn about and access good health. This guide shares knowledge on how to be and stay healthy. Maintenance and prevention strategies, along with reviews of conditions and issues affecting wellness are explored. Please join me, your host, Dr. Richard Pellman, as I interview renowned experts who will provide you with timely, relevant, and vital information so that you can embark on a journey towards better health. For more information from this podcast, including take-home points and resource links, we invite you to visit our website, theoriginalguidetomenshealth.org. You can also find us on social media. We invite you to follow us there and share episodes on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Take a breath. Take another breath. Take a deep breath. Breathing, something we do every day, from birth to death, so vital to life. We don't think much about it, but what happens when we breathe? What do the lungs do? How do they work? What are some of the diseases that affect our lungs that are so vital to good health? Today on the Original Guide to Men's Health, we will interview Dr. David Schwartz, Distinguished Professor of Medicine and Immunology in the Division of Pulmonary Sciences and Critical Care at the University of Colorado. Dr. Schwartz is the immediate past chair of medicine, the University of Colorado School of Medicine, Director, Center for Genes, Environment, and Health, National Jewish Health, and previous Director of National Institute of Environmental Health Sciences at the National Institutes of Health. Dr. Schwartz is a pulmonologist and geneticist and has focused his research career on understanding the role that genetic determinants play on the onset of diseases that are influenced by the environment. These efforts have provided new insights into the genetics, epigenetics, and genomics of pulmonary fibrosis, asthma, and innate immunity. His work has led to the recognition that genetic susceptibility and specifically MUC5B, plays a role in the development of pulmonary fibrosis. Dr. Schwartz, thank you for joining us on the Original Guide to Men's Health this morning. I've been looking forward to this episode to speak about pulmonary diseases, how the lungs function, and cover a broad range of topics about something that most of us take for granted every day, which is breathing. So welcome and thank you for taking the time to join us. Well, thanks, Richard. It's a pleasure to be here. And the lungs are an important part of our daily lives. So it's good to get started and talk about this organ and how it fits into everything else. Well, do you want to just give a little background in what the lungs do and how they work, how the magic happens? Yeah, well, the lungs are actually more complex than you would think. But at the very basic understanding of how lungs work is that they deliver oxygen to the body and they remove carbon dioxide from the body. This is important for the way cells function. Cells are absolutely dependent on oxygen and they're dependent on maintaining normal acid-base balance, which carbon dioxide elimination results in normal function. In other words, the lungs are important in delivering oxygen and removing carbon dioxide and maintaining pH balance in the rest of the body so that everything can function normally, both the cells as well as the other organs. In a more complex level of understanding, the lungs move a huge amount of air in and out of the body, and moving that air in and out of the body requires a normal airway function. It also requires that any debris pollutants that happen to be in the air gets cleared by the lungs in ways that prevent the lungs from being damaged when they're doing their work. So 
The lungs act as a really interesting interface with the environment. And by acting as an interface with the environment, they get exposed to a lot that we have in our normal 21st century environment in the air, which includes a number of particles, a number of bacteria and viruses, and changes in temperature. And as a result, the lungs are complex, and the job that the lungs are doing is complex. So again, at the very basic level, it's a matter of delivering oxygen to the organs and uh, to the cells and maintaining a pH balance. At a more complex level, it's interfacing with a very complex, changing, dynamic environment. Well, you've uh, segued into uh, one of the questions I was going to ask, given your introduction and your research, your world that you've explored as far as environmental impact on pulmonary function in the lungs. We'll speak a little bit about different pulmonary specialists and things for people who are listening, but let's explore a little bit about the environment. I mean, when I was a medical student, we learned about occupational diseases that affected the lungs and then smog started to be an issue with the lungs. But you know, you're in Colorado and with the forest fires and we're in Washington with forest fires and now the nation is getting gripped with pollutants. There are many things that are affecting the air and the air quality and particularly climate change, which has brought more to the table. Do you want to explore a little bit about how that all interfaces? Yeah, this is a very big topic and it involves really Simple exposures that occur in our everyday environment, like low levels of air pollution or passive exposure to cigarette smoke or even direct exposure to cigarette smoke, and then more complex exposures that involve mixtures of gases and particles and changes in temperature that affect the way the lungs can deliver oxygen to the cells and remove carbon dioxide from the body. And so the environment that we're faced with really is interesting because it forces the lungs to adapt and readapt to a changing and dynamic environment. And the best example that I can give you for that is that the lungs respond to excess particle deposition by creating much more mucus. And that mucus ends up having to get expelled from the lungs. And that is expelled by a variety of mechanisms, one of which is uh, simple, which is coughing and coughing up that mucus. And that mucus is laden with particles, air pollution particles for the most part, but it could be laden with particles from smoking cigarettes or being exposed to passive smoke. Mucus can also be eliminated from the lungs by the cilia, the little hair-like projection from cells that move mucus up the airway and cause it to come up into the throat and then you swallow that. Mucus can also be removed from the lungs by cells called alveolar macrophages. And those macrophages are what we call inflammatory cells that engulf particles and, and engulf mucus and eliminate it metabolically from the lungs by destroying it within the cell. So there are a variety of mechanisms to remove move the mucus, but the mucus is there because we're breathing too many particles into the, our lungs and we're causing our lungs to work overtime to remove this mucus. Other examples are when you inhale bacteria or viruses into the lungs. They don't always cause infections. In fact, our immune system in the lung is complex and it's is constructed in such a way that it can kill the bacteria and viruses and oftentimes does kill the bacteria and viruses, but then those dead bacteria and viruses need to be eliminated from the lungs again by this complex production of mucus and elimination of mucus from the lungs. You know, people sort of imagine that the impact of inhaling these particles and other things is maybe cancer. Are there other 
ways that it adversely affects pulmonary function. We'll get more into the weeds on that in a little bit, but what other kind of issues besides mucus production and chronic cough does this onslaught to the lungs cause or impair function? The airway constriction that occurs when people have asthma and chronic obstructive lung disease, and I know we'll talk more about airway disease in a little bit, but the the constriction that results as a result of inhaling particles or inhaling ozone, excess concentrations of ozone into the lung can cause airflow obstruction because the airways are constricting and they're constricting because the lung doesn't like those particles and they get irritated from the particles. The airways get irritated from those particles and they have a constrictive response. And that's somewhat protective, uh, but it causes symptoms in such a way that makes it difficult to get air in and out of the lungs. And so one can develop this wheezing in the lungs in breathing as a result of simply being exposed to too many particles or to ozone or to other uh, fumes that one might inhale. In a more complex way, the lung acts as this very interesting interface with the environment. And as the environment changes, it forces our immune system and the lung to evolve genetically and respond to that by developing new mechanisms to prevent the development of a lung disease and prevent the development of a variety of different diseases as a way of defending the lung and the body ultimately uh, from adverse challenges from the environment. So the lung act as sort of the sentinel organ to interface with the environment. And in that context, uh, tells the body how it needs to evolve and change in response to these very novel environmental challenges. When people who are susceptible to these environmental challenges are faced with going out, uh, let's say it's not occupational, we'll get there in a second, but just going out for daily life and there's forest fires or it's a heavy smog day. What do you tell your patients to do? Or is there good advice for a general public who don't have underlying pulmonary disease? Yeah, that's a great question. It's really important to avoid smog days. It's really important to avoid smoke from forest fires. And it's particularly important for people with lung disease and for children to avoid those exposures. And we need to keep those folks indoors, prevent them from exercising out of doors. If they want to continue to exercise, which I would always recommend, they should exercise inside. And they should avoid being out in the environment where that excess smoke and that excess smog might be. Now, the reason that people with lung disease should avoid that is because it can precipitate attacks. It can precipitate the acute attack of an asthma attack or an attack uh, from chronic obstructive lung disease. It can even tip people over and cause individuals to have heart attacks. So what you breathe into the lungs can certainly affect the circulation in ways to make it very difficult to deliver enough blood to the heart muscle and can cause people with heart disease to have a heart attack. So it's very important for people with chronic vascular disease and chronic lung disease to avoid those environmental challenges. For children, it's particularly important to avoid those environmental challenges because it can cause lung disease. It can cause children to develop an asthma-like response and ingrain or imprint an asthma-like response in those kids that get exposed to other things like viruses that cause them to develop a more chronic asthma condition. So it's very important for children who have smaller airways and are more susceptible because of their very small airways and relatively large oxygen demands 
for them to avoid environments where they get exposed to excess smog or excess smoke. So if I'm home and trying not to get out, if I have an air filter, there are some that help clear the house air. And what else as far as indoor prevention? A lot of people made homemade HIPAA filters. Yeah, the HEPA filters work. You know, they're actually quite good. They remove particles from the air. They remove allergens from the air. They also remove, if you have the proper filter, they remove ozone from the air that you breathe. So they are effective, but they have to move enough air to really filter the air in the room. It's important for people to have the proper filtration system or new filters on their air conditioning systems or their heating systems to prevent them from getting exposed to excess particles. So it's important on a regular basis to change your filters in your ventilation system. And for the people who just have to go out, I can't stay inside. Do you recommend masking with N95s, KN95s? Or what do you do if people have to be outside? Well, we have found over the past couple of years with the COVID pandemic, that the N95 filters, masks, are incredibly effective in reducing the respiratory burden in the air that we breathe. In other words, these masks, K95 masks or N95 masks, are very, very effective in preventing individuals from developing respiratory infections and should be used by children that are going to school in situations where there's excess smoke or smog in the air. They're very effective and should be used more frequently than they are. So let's now move to go back to smoking and smoking-related diseases, since that is hopefully something that we could prevent, and yet we still see smoking and vaping and an adverse effect on our pulmonary function. And speak a little bit about the pulmonary function issues and smoking-related diseases, COPD, and cancers. Well, unfortunately, cigarette smoke causes a lot of disease in the lung. And as you might imagine, the lung ends up getting the brunt of the burden of cigarette smoke. But let's not forget that cigarette smoking can cause vascular disease, heart disease, as well as vascular disease that causes neurologic problems. But as it relates to the lung, the most common disease that cigarette smoke causes is airway disease, both asthma, which is reversible airflow obstruction, and chronic obstructive lung disease, which is irreversible airflow obstruction, oftentimes associated with bronchitis or excess mucus production. So the airway diseases that cigarette smoke causes can be treated with various inhalers and antibiotics. They are reversible initially in terms of airflow obstruction, but develop into a chronic condition and an irreversible condition as one continues to smoke cigarettes or continue to be exposed to cigarette smoke through secondhand smoke. Now, these conditions are treatable for the most part, but really need to be treated with regular visits to the physician or to the caregiver, the physician's assistant or nurse practitioner. More serious conditions include emphysema, where the lung tissue actually gets destroyed by cigarette smoke. And that destruction of lung tissue prevents the normal delivery of oxygen to the body and the normal ability of the body to, or the lungs, the ability of the lungs to remove carbon dioxide. Causes actual holes in the lungs that are emphysematous lung tissue or destruction of lung tissue. That is not treatable. And those emphysematous blebs in the lungs cause a great deal of problems in delivering oxygen or air to the normal portions of the lungs. The fourth type of lung disease that cigarette smoke causes is lung fibrosis or scarring in the lungs. 
And uh, this type of scarring in the lungs prevents air from being delivered to the distal portions of the lungs and prevents the normal exchange of oxygen and carbon dioxide. Lastly, cigarette smoke, because of all the carcinogens that are present in cigarette smoke, can cause lung cancer, various forms of lung cancer, and associated with cancer in other organs outside of the lungs. So there are a variety of diseases that are caused by cigarette smoke. And this is not only direct cigarette smoke, it's passive cigarette smoke. So all of these conditions are caused by vaping of smoke from these new delivery systems that deliver tobacco smoke in other forms. So I always emphasize to patients who smoke that they should keep trying to quit. We understand it's an addiction. In fact, we have a whole episode 16 on smoking, vaping, and tobacco. And there are some good tips for trying to quit. But if somebody's tried and failed, they should keep trying. And again, that episode reviews some excellent opportunities and how to approach quitting smoking. But it's one of the things that people can do to really improve their quality of life. One of the important points about quitting smoking is that if you're smoking less than the equivalent of 10 cigarettes a day, you're not addicted to nicotine, which means that you're in a position where you can stop smoking if you decide you want to stop smoking cigarettes. So you need to figure out something to fill that void. And that's an important point because many people who smoke cigarettes just smoke half a dozen cigarettes a day and they feel like they need that, but they can probably substitute it with something else. Exercise, going for a walk, reading a book, getting a dog, getting a cat, doing something that would take that additional time that they're currently devoting to smoking that half a dozen cigarettes a day. Well, let's jump to uh, just a review of somebody who has problems. Either they're a chronic cough, they're wheezing, they got what they think might be asthma, they're having trouble breathing. Let's review your specialty. There are some subspecialties within the pulmonary medicine arena. We have critical care specialists who started are mostly pulmonologists, not necessarily. Now there's critical care pathways. Sleep medicine, occupational lung disease people, people who specialize in pulmonary oncology, I suppose. Do you want to elaborate on any of those or add some that I've missed? I'd say that that covers the waterfront in terms of the specialties in pulmonary medicine. Uh, you know, I think people in pulmonary medicine divide their attention between inpatient and outpatient care. And those that do inpatient care generally devote their attention to either the intensive care unit, where people have very serious lung disease that may or may not need a ventilatory support, and uh, procedures where they do bronchoscopies and other procedures to help diagnose and treat a variety of different lung conditions. And then people who treat patients in the outpatient setting who generally devote their attention to treating either airway disease or parenchymal lung disease, fibrotic lung disease. And internal medicine docs, family docs may initially approach treatment without referring a bit complex case, or when does somebody need to see the pulmonologist? Anyone who's receiving chronic care for a lung problem, meaning care for a lung problem that exceeds six to 12 months, should see a pulmonologist as a consult. And then depending on what type of lung disease they have, might need to see a pulmonologist on an ongoing basis. Mild and moderate forms of chronic obstructive lung disease and asthma probably can be best taken care of by a primary care physician with an occasional visit to a pulmonologist. More serious forms of airway disease, asthma, and chronic obstructive lung disease, bronchitis, emphysema, should probably be seen by a pulmonologist on an ongoing basis. My view is that any type of pulmonary fibrosis should be seen by a specialist, a pulmonologist, at least once. 
and then depending how serious it is, should be seen by a pulmonologist on an ongoing basis. Now, we forgot to mention one other type of pulmonologist that's very important is a transplant pulmonologist. Transplantation medicine is actually an area that has emerged as being incredibly important over the past 25, 30 years and has made great strides in terms of prolonging meaningful quality of life in individuals with end-stage lung disease and end-stage diseases of the heart, kidney, liver, and a variety of other conditions. Well, let's talk about some common pulmonary conditions. We mentioned COPD, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, but is that an umbrella term? What falls under that? As a pulmonologist, we think of chronic obstructive lung disease as three different conditions wrapped into one. Chronic obstructive lung disease includes airway disease or airflow obstruction. It includes bronchitis or increased mucus production. And it also includes emphysema, which are these holes in the lungs that are caused by exposure to cigarette smoke, the destructive elements of cigarette smoke that can cause lung tissue to be destroyed and just disappear. And those three components have to be treated in three different ways. So the airflow obstruction in chronic obstructive lung disease needs to be treated with inhalers, both beta agonists that increase the diameter of the airway and prevent the development of airway constriction, as well as anti-inflammatory agents that decrease the inflammation in the airway. Bronchitis needs to be treated with inhaled steroids that decrease the inflammation of the mucus, but we also need to treat the bacterial infections. So occasionally we need to treat the bacterial infections with antibiotics, usually intermittent antibiotics. And then the emphysema needs to be treated in such a way that we manage the the progression of emphysema and we prevent the emphysema from impairing the air moving in and out of the lungs. And we treat the emphysema by making sure that the airways are functioning in the maximally efficient way to prevent the emphysema from impairing the airways from moving air in and out of the lungs. And, and that gets back to treating the airways primarily and making sure that the airways are functioning normally. We also treat the emphysema with supplemental oxygen because occasionally individuals who have emphysema need supplemental oxygen to maintain their oxygen needs. And there's been progress over decades in the treatment of COPD and its related disorders. Somebody perhaps who's been treated a few years ago should revisit their pulmonology consult just to make sure that nothing is new that could help them. Absolutely. I think that, you know, individuals with serious lung diseases should ask their primary care physician to refer them to a pulmonologist for evaluation. Now, one question is, what's a serious lung disease? And I would say a serious lung disease is a lung disease that impairs your daily functioning. So in other words, if you feel like your lung disease is preventing you from exercising during the day or walking briskly or taking care of your normally daily activities of taking a shower or makes you feel like you're not able to eat breakfast at the pace that you want to eat breakfast or is uh, requiring that you're being treated with oxygen to maintain your oxygen needs. All of those activities are impairing your daily functioning and are examples of impaired daily functioning. And those should prompt an evaluation by a lung doctor and also possibly by a cardiologist to make sure that your heart and lungs are working at their maximal efficiency. When you have patients who are in this stage, in various stages of COPD, 
Are there things that they can do lifestyle-wise besides avoiding smog, environmental smoke, smoking to help themselves? I'm talking about weight loss, perhaps, or exercise. Do you have your patients continue to exercise and move around even though it may be limited? Yeah, that's a great point. Getting involved in an exercise program is probably one of the most important things that anyone should do, especially individuals with chronic lung or heart diseases. And there are exercise programs that can be geared to individuals with chronic diseases that impair their cardiac or pulmonary function. And I want to make sure that the listener understands that the heart and the lungs work together as one unit. And working together as one unit, the lung doctor is always thinking about the cardiologist and the cardiologist is always thinking about the pulmonologist to work together as a way of maximizing the efficiency of that one heart and lung unit that we have that oftentimes gets impaired as uh, someone ages. Well, let's look at something that you have spent a lot of your career reviewing, which is pulmonary fibrosis. And review a little bit. I think in your introduction, you found a gene MUC5B. That may be a mystery as to what does that mean? Start with sort of a background of pulmonary fibrosis. Are there different types? Is there a genetic form? Is there a susceptibility from reflux and scarring, environmental issues? Okay. So there are about a hundred forms of pulmonary fibrosis. There are types of pulmonary fibrosis where we know the cause, and there are types of pulmonary fibrosis where we don't know the cause. And the types of pulmonary fibrosis where we know the cause are, are diseases like asbestosis, where you inhale asbestos particles into the lungs, and those asbestos particles cause a reaction in the lungs that causes scarring. There are other diseases that are known to cause pulmonary fibrosis or other exposures that are known to cause pulmonary fibrosis are coal dust and silica. So co-workers pneumoconiosis or silicosis, these are causes of scarring in the lung. There are immune causes of scarring in the lung, like sarcoidosis, where you have an allergic response in the lung and that results in scarring. There are immune diseases like rheumatoid arthritis that are associated with scarring in the lung, rheumatoid arthritis-associated interstitial lung disease. And as I said, there are lots of other causes of immune or non-immune related lung disease that causes scarring, and we know the causes. Then there are types of lung disease where we don't know the cause. And those types of lung, lung fibrosis where we don't know the cause, the most common form is this type called idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. And the word idiopathic in medicine means that we don't understand the cause of pulmonary fibrosis. So idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis means we don't know the cause of pulmonary fibrosis. Many years ago, there were a number of reports of idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis occurring in families. And because I was interested in genetic causes or gene environment interactions in terms of the causes of disease, and we knew that cigarette smoking was a risk factor in terms of the development of idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. The fact that this was occurring more frequently in families led me to raise the question of whether there was a genetic cause of idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. So I collected a number of families and carefully evaluated members in those families. And we did an old-fashioned study called a linkage study, which is never done anymore. But we did an old-fashioned study that led us to discover that the main cause of pulmonary fibrosis was on one of the short arms of one of the chromosomes, chromosome 11, in people who had, in families who had excess cases of pulmonary fibrosis. 
I then mapped that region on chromosome 11 and found out that there was a gene on chromosome 11 called MUC5B, M-U-C-5B, that was strongly associated with pulmonary fibrosis, not only in families, but in sporadic cases of idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. And this was important because it ended up identifying a genetic cause of a disease where we didn't know the cause of that disease. It was before it was idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. And as a result of our discovery, 50% of the cases of idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis were caused by this genetic problem, MUC5B. And it turned out that this MUC5B gene was not only important in idiopathic forms of the disease, it was important in known causes of pulmonary fibrosis, rheumatoid arthritis-associated interstitial lung disease, asbestosis, and a hypersensitivity pneumonitis. So all of a sudden, it became a very important clue as to why people were developing these forms of lung fibrosis. And it told us what not only the cause was, but what the disease mechanism was and how to approach that disease mechanism in terms of treatment. So if, for instance, a family has a strong family history, uncles, dad with pulmonary fibrosis, could the children get tested? The children can get tested. We do this occasionally. We're probably going to do it more frequently. In fact, we're in the process of trying to figure out how to take this genetic knowledge now of who's at risk of developing disease and translate it into screening populations who are at risk of developing disease. We found that not only should families with two or more cases be screened for the disease, but we found that families with just one case of pulmonary fibrosis probably should be screened for risk of developing disease in people who don't have disease. And the reason that that's important is because we think that by identifying disease earlier, and especially by identifying individuals who are at risk of disease, we can prevent them from developing early disease. And for those with early disease, we can prevent them from developing extensive disease that limit their ability to function and prevent the development of irreversible and progressive lung fibrosis. Are there some simple things that people can do? What do you advise them then to prevent that progression? Or is it, we're not talking about gene splicing or yet? Not yet, but we're thinking about it. There are a variety of treatments that are currently available for patients with early lung fibrosis. And we're finding that the treatments that we use for individuals with established disease prevent individuals with early lung fibrosis from going on to develop extensive lung fibrosis. But we think that there are more targeted treatments, treatments that are directed at MUC5B or treatments that are directed at other genetic causes of lung fibrosis. And there have been other forms of other genetic causes of lung fibrosis that have been discovered at the same time that the MUC5B gene was discovered. If you were um, somebody listening and you knew you had a family history, are there centers of excellence as far as research or treating pulmonary fibrosis, or would your local pulmonologist know enough about things, or would that pulmonologist refer to a center of excellence? In addition to just getting in touch with me, which I'd be happy to have patients with lung fibrosis get in touch with me and I can help direct them to the physician expert in their area. In addition to doing that, there are two sources of information that I think patients and their families would benefit from. One is the National Institutes of Health. 
The National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute has a great website for lung fibrosis, and that would be a very easy website to go to www.nih.gov and then go to the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute and then just search under pulmonary fibrosis. The second site is the Pulmonary Fibrosis Foundation. The Pulmonary Fibrosis Foundation can look it up on a Google search, would be a site to go to that would provide a lot of information for families and for patients suffering from pulmonary fibrosis. Excellent. Excellent. We do uh, have a webpage and we'll list those resources for people as well. We have a little bit of time left and lots to cover. Talk about something that's fairly common. People develop chronic cough. So how do you define chronic cough? When should somebody be seen? I know there's a huge differential there, but go a little bit into what might be explored. Should somebody have a chronic cough and how long do they have to have a cough to call it a chronic cough? Well, chronic cough is a little bit of an ambiguous term, but I would say that if someone has a cough that lasts longer than two or three months, they should be seen by a pulmonologist. And the reason that I say this is because if it's lasting longer than two or three months, they've been seen by their primary care giver, either a physician or a physician extender, and they haven't been able to solve the problem yet. Chronic cough can be caused by very mild asthma. It can be caused by chronic obstructive lung disease. It can be caused by pulmonary fibrosis. It can be caused by acid reflux. It can be caused by nasal and sinus problems. And there are even more subtle problems with the larynx that can result in chronic cough. The larynx is the voice box. And so there are a variety of different problems that can lead to chronic cough. And it's important to have someone think about all these different problems when taking a history and doing a variety of tests like lung function tests, which we haven't yet talked about, but lung function tests that might be helpful in sorting out whether it's an airway disease or whether it's a lung parenchymal disease or whether it's a GI problem, a gastrointestinal problem, esophageal problem resulting in the development of chronic cough. Chronic cough can be debilitating because it can keep people from participating in social events. It can, oh, chronic cough can also be caused by infectious problems. And chronic cough is usually very, very treatable. And it's something that can get people back to normal daily functioning, which is important. And so I would recommend that anyone with a cough that persists for longer than two or three months should be seen by a pulmonologist who can deal with this complex and extensive differential diagnosis. Excellent. And I know it's a really general topic and we could spend another hour on pulmonary cancers, but are there ways of diagnosing lung cancer or is it you just wait till symptoms occur? Or how is it found? Well, we've made a lot of strides in that area as well. So the National Cancer Institute had a very large study where they decided that they would see if scanning, CT scanning as a screening mechanism, as a screening tool would help pick up cancers that are treatable in at-risk individuals. So they looked simply at cigarette smokers that I believe were older than 40 years of age. They did screening CT scans on those individuals. And they found that screening CT scans on individuals, I believe older than 40, it might've been 50 years of age, was beneficial in picking up early treatable lung cancers. So anyone who is offered a screening CT scan, just like a screening mammogram should for screening for breast cancer, should avail themselves of a screening CT scan screening for early lung cancer because 
early lung cancer that's resected, that's removed surgically or treated with radiation early can prevent the development of more extensive lung cancers that can go on to cause problems in terms of shortened life survival. How often would a screening CT be done in that study? Do they have any suggestions? Or I think at this point, initial screening CT is done. And if that screening CT is negative, a subsequent screening CT is done every five years. Okay, great, great advice. And looking at pulmonary infections, we talk about pneumonias. There is a vaccine for a specific type of pneumonia. It's recommended. Well, there are several vaccines now that are available. Certainly the one that is most current is the COVID vaccine, and that prevents people from getting COVID or prevents individuals from getting serious COVID. And I would recommend those vaccines very strongly to your listenership. They will prevent individuals from getting infection. And if you get infection, they'll prevent serious infection and they will prevent you from giving that infection to other individuals. Apart from the COVID vaccine, there's the influenza vaccine, which prevents individuals from getting yearly influenza infections that can result in very serious pneumonias. And then there's the pneumovax, and the pneumovax prevents individuals from getting a pneumococcal pneumonia, which is another serious form of infection. And I would recommend those three vaccines at the very least to your listenership. And we do have a couple of episodes on COVID, Dr. Paul Pottinger giving a general background into COVID and infection, and Larry Corey talking about vaccine safety. So if listeners haven't found those and have interest, they can go back. Looking at other pulmonary infections that seem to be around that people can acquire, what other things should people be aware of? People should be aware of all the viruses that cause infection. Respiratory syncytial virus, RSV, is common now. And we're talking about the triple whammy, COVID or SARS-CoV-2, influenza, and RSV. All of those can be prevented by masks. And it's important to think about masking in situations where you're going to be exposed to lots of people in the airports or in social situations where you're going to be around a lot of other individuals. You might want to use a mask in those situations. And so you can use a mask intermittently that can prevent those infections. And as I mentioned, vaccines against influenza and certainly against SARS-CoV-2 or COVID infections can prevent those infections. I think that those are the main infections in the lungs that are preventable at this point in time. There are some rarer things out there, you know, a, a bacterial or fungal infections. That's more particular to your area, valley fever. People who have been in the San Joaquin Valley and have exposure to soils and TB has pretty much been treated and eradicated, but it's still out there. It's definitely still out there. And that's another reason why people with chronic cough really need to be seen by someone who understands uh, these somewhat subtle and rare infections of the lung that can go on for a period of time before they become very serious. Yeah, it's unfortunate that masks became a political entity. They're such a good public health measure. I think maybe there's been a culture change here in the United States after COVID and more people are getting comfortable taking care of themselves by prevention through masking, particularly during flu and cold season and being exposed to these other viruses. As we wrap up, I always like to look at, are there just a few words of advice for maintaining good pulmonary health? Well, I think the most important thing is to, first of all, avoid cigarette smoke. Cigarette smoking and just the passive exposure to cigarette smoke, direct and as well as passive exposure to cigarette smoke can cause huge health problems. So avoid smoky situations, first of all. Uh, secondly, when there's smoke outside from forest fires or from or smoggy days, really avoid those situations, especially if you have chronic lung disease or if you have children at home. I think 
it's important to stress each one of our organs in different ways. And exercise is a great way of stressing the lungs and keeping the lungs as healthy as possible. So get involved in an exercise program that you can stick with, something that is not too extreme, but something that stimulates you and something that you enjoy doing. We again have a number of episodes on exercise. So if somebody's going, how do I start? Find those episodes. So sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. Go ahead. No, and I'd say that problems from physician side are the easiest to deal with in the earliest stages. So don't feel uncomfortable about bringing small problems to the attention of your physician or your caregiver. Make sure that your caregiver understands changes that might be occurring as you're aging that you might be concerned with. Some things that are happen to be limiting your daily activities in certain ways. Bring those to the attention of your caregiver before they become serious problems. And we gave some resources for pulmonary fibrosis. Any just general resources for the public on pulmonary health? I would say that the most important resources are the resources of your primary care providers and and close contact with your primary care providers. I think sometimes Googling ends up resulting in a lot of misinformation. And I think that that can either falsely assuage concerns about a variety of problems And so I would say definitely use the NIH, National Institutes of Health, as a guide toward your health and your primary care provider as a guide for your health as well. Well, Excellent. Well, Dr. David Schwartz, it's been wonderful. I really appreciate your time. Our listeners appreciate your expertise. It's been a great segment and episode. And thank you so much. Great talking with you, Dr. Pellman. This completes another episode of the original Guide to Men's Health podcast. We wish to thank all guests who volunteered their time and knowledge. The information presented is the opinion of the speakers. The show's recordings are engineered and edited by Sean Fox. Episode titles and descriptions, as well as editing assistance, are provided by Dr. Kathleen O'Connor, Ph.D. Music for our show is San Juan Bells, Written and performed by Dr. David Weidig. The podcast is sponsored and published by the Washington State Urology Society. The original Guide to Men's Health is an original publication of the Washington State Urology Society. Reproduction and use without the expressed or written consent of the society is prohibited. For more information about men's health and previous episodes, as well as additional recommended resources, visit us online at the original guide to men's health.com. This is Dr. Richard Pellman thanking you for listening and reminding you to take care of yourself.